Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Holly Burrows from Bucks, and you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, how do you make yourself get up in the morning and not hate it? Okay, here comes the show, and remember, question everything. Hello everybody, welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked, and we are talking everything from... We are talking everything from Holly uh, from Buckinghamshire's question. How do you make yourself get up in the morning and not hate it? Dane, as a stand-up comedian, <laughs> I know that you suffer from this problem. Yeah. Um, what you got, mate? What you got? Um, how how well, do you not hate the mornings? First of all, I was worrying if this, this question was quite personal. Was it like, how do you wake up and not hate yourself, Dane? And I'd be like, what's wrong with myself? <laughs> but... Uh, I think it's it's a really good question. It's a really good existential question. I think it's probably a question that has become a more intensified one since the pandemic mm. and lockdown. Um, but I would say, Holly, without sounding too pretentious, uh, I guess I try to structure my life in a way whereby, through my work and my livelihood or vocation, I kind of have something to look forward to when I'm waking up. Mm. So uh, for me, one of my... Uh, reasons for pursuing comedy in earnest was that I could wake up and not know exactly what was going to happen every day. Yeah. Whereas when I was working a normal job, I'd know what was going to happen every day. So I guess I, I would say providing yourself with a livelihood that you can focus on or an aspiration, no matter how small, is where you can wake up in the morning and not hate it because that gives you kind of drive. Mm. Um, but then I'd also say existentially that um, not hating it, I guess I rationalize it by the fact that I've woken up. So the fact that I get to wake up every day is enough of an impetus to get through that day, I suppose. So every day above ground is a good one to an extent. What a, what a, a perfect answer. Mine was just going to be that I tickle my, my son. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> tickling a child is such a, is such a simple way to amuse Nothing like the, inner, yeah, the innocence of childish laughter <laughs> to uh, help you get up in the day. So uh, yeah, Absolutely. vitamin D, vitamin yeah. D and, and, and unbridled joy from a child. But suffice to say, on this podcast, we ask and answer all the questions, don't we, Dave? Absolutely. No question is too big, too small, too early in the morning or too late at night to ask on this podcast. And if you do like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode. Or you can subscribe to us on ACAST, the world's biggest podcast network where you can hear all of the very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests. With that being said, on today's show is a lawyer, businesswoman, campaigner and cabinet minister in 2007 she was elevated to the house of lords making her the youngest peer in parliament 
In 2010, she was appointed to the Prime Minister David Cameron as Minister Without Portfolio, becoming the first Muslim to serve as a cabinet minister. Her charitable foundation works to improve social mobility by providing opportunities and support for those who are disadvantaged by race, class, gender or faith. She is also a member of my Pat Lunch family on Steph's Pat Lunch, which you can see me on Channel 4. So please welcome to the show, Baroness Saeed Awazi. Hello. Welcome. Hello. How was that introduction for you? There's a lot. I, mean, I can I can do a lot. I, of, um, lot I'm very lengthy. I had to pay a lot of money to Dane to do that, you know. <laughs> well, I have yet to see said check. So how? <laughs> Let me check the junk mail. Uh, Did you not get that brown envelope that I left on the desk for you last time we met? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, brown envelopes are not not normally filled with money so it's a <laughs> now Saida come on talk to us about your morning what's what's your tips on how to you know be be happy or you know deal with mornings you know I was listening to you too and I thought how lucky are you that you can actually sleep through to the morning you know you get to a certain <laughs> age in life you get to a certain age in life and your bladder and menopause means you have four mornings you get up at two you get up at four you get up at six I've got that <laughs> now I go to the toilet a lot to be fair during the night but I think that's also like a part of my own paranoia just to do a quick sleep <laughs> of the house en route to the bathroom but I understand. And so when you find when you wake up for the fourth time, how then do you not hate? <laughs> you know, I, uh, I I suppose a lot like you, Dane. I have a you know I have a crazy busy life, but I have a fabulous. I'm, you know, I'm so privileged to have such a um, a fabulous different set of workplaces that I work in. Everything you know, from Parliament to business to charity to TV, and no day is the same. And Therefore, the excitement of what that day can 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 bring and and where it may lead you is is just what gets me up in the morning. And you know, I'm I'm also lucky that the kids have all moved out, and I don't really <laughs> have anybody. I don't have to oh. wake up in the morning and think about anybody but myself. And God, if I, I could just get rid, of, if I get rid of my kid for like one day, it's like I feel like I've I've escaped prison. Like is how I feel about when my son's not here for a morning. It's uh, I mean, you, yeah. you made him Howard, so. I, I know, but it is, it is like a, it is a tough thing because you know you. Uh, my perfect morning is like watching uh, old ninety sitcoms and drinking coffee and eating toast and reading football gossip. And he doesn't like any of that, so yeah. it's problematic. You know, he's a bit you of a square man. Yeah, you know my Everybody loves Raymond O'Howard. Everyone loves Raymond. He, he doesn't like everybody. Though. He doesn't understand it. It's got no pigs, animated pigs in it. It's got. No and pigs. I guess he doesn't care for any tossed salad or scrambled eggs. Exactly. And he just wants to see what's in my coffee cup. And he can't have coffee because he's just, just not going to work out for anyone. So, oh, sorry, How old is he? He is uh, technically 21 months. Uh, oh, he can have coffee. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of my favorite guests already. Thanks. For- <laughs> if, you can re- if you can reach it, you can drink it. And, you know, Starbucks do those baby chinos now, don't they? So. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God. Um, Imagine him on coffee. I know it sounds weird, but the, for me, the perfect morning is one that isn't all kind of planned out um, and just, you know, has the space for you to be able to do it slowly. So, you know, I, I think if I'm completely honest with myself, the ideal waking up is when I can wake up, I can go for a run, do some yoga, 
meditate and then start the day because I kind of wow. feel like I've, I've kind of mind body and soul is in a good space mm. and then I can toxify all with politics but at least I've had that moment in the morning <laughs> at least you've, yeah you've that. had that set in the morning just to kind of center <laughs> yeah. yourself yeah and, and you noticed that Saida didn't say open Twitter uh, or any any kind of social media that that's a good point I've, I've learned to do that that was a mistake I always that made it's not helping that's that, and that's like that's like being a deity where you wake up and it's like why you were sleeping God here were the prayers that people said to you Oh my God, what's wrong with these humans? Uh, But it's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane, as the format of this show dictates? Absolutely, uh, Baroness Wazi. First of all, we'd like to open a floor for you to ask a question, any question you'd like, which we'd like to discuss for 15 minutes and some change. And then how we'd like to pose you a question where we'd like to do the same. And in a surprising change of policy, I would like to ask you a question which we discuss for 15 minutes and then we'd like for you to tell our listeners where they can find out more about your good works and more as they can see you other than alongside me on Steph's Pat Lunch. How does that sound? Oh, God, sounds great. Um, so the question that I want to ask is what makes somebody a British citizen and are there different classes of citizenship? And, and I, have to, I have to just reflect back to you a little bit here and say... What inspires this question? Because I know it's been inspired by something particular. It is, because at the moment we've got this um, bill going through Parliament called the Nationality and Borders Bill, and it's raised the question again of people, British citizens being stripped of their citizenship. And for me, looking back at what happened with the Windrush uh, scandal, what has happened more recently where we've made people who have left this country stateless, um, and the fact that here I am, when my grandfather came here in 1958, 60, 70 years on, um, the government is effectively saying people like me and others could have their citizenship taken away from them. And we're hearing, the, hearing this stupid mantra of, oh, citizenship is a privilege. It's not a right. Uh, I just want to hear how we got here and... Um, just discuss really that, you know, what is it about today's Britain that we can't understand this really basic fundamental right that when you are a citizen, you have rights and that includes your right not to have your citizenship taken off you because it is fundamentally a part of who you are and your identity. Well, and and, and I can guarantee uh, my, my friend Dane Baptiste is going to have many things <laughs> to say about this. So I'm just going to chip in quickly and say that the other week... Um, there was a census released from, I think, 1920. I don't know if you heard. You know, they release uh, the data from previous generations uh, periodically. And it answered a question that my family had been trying to work out for about 30 years, which is where we as uh, Jewish family came from and we found the exact town for the first time ever <laughs> in Poland uh, that we had fled uh, in the uh, you know kind of the turn of the century you know whatever it was and um, it was one of the first times I ever thought oh blimey if someone ever said to me you know go back to where you came from uh, <laughs> I, know, I know where to go now I mean <laughs> first time yeah, well. first time ever I know where to go but it also raised the thing in my head before I chuck it over the day and he's like I've, I've, you know, like, I, I guess it seems such an alien idea to not feel like I'm a Brit, but then I'm an immigrant. <laughs> like, I've got the data now. I can tell you exactly where they came from. The idea that I'm an immigrant, uh, you know, and Jews get it differently, partly because 
you can't be as racist to Jews as easily uh, for a lot of people. Well, it's easily. It's not yeah. as easy. It's yeah. not as easy. You, you can do it, but it's definitely not quite as simple. Um, oh, I, I, oh, yeah. Oh, we, we've probably not seen a more recent uh, act of demarginalization. But the, I mean, the reality of it is yes, that we're white, we're white and that just creates a different yeah. layer. That, but, that, you know, should I give you some breaking news, uh, Howard? Yeah. You and every other person who was born Jewish in Britain can have their citizenship stripped. This is, because this is the crazy the rules thing, right? are, Because the rules are that if the, if the state can establish that you somewhere else would have a right to another citizenship, and it might not be Poland, but say if you had the right, as part of the right of return to Israel, you could, if you wanted to take up an Israeli citizenship, whether you choose to take it up or not is irrelevant. You are still in the category of people who can be stripped. So mm. I think if we actually sat down here and did a little bit of a rundown, all three of us would <laughs> fall don't. into the category of somebody who Priti Patel could say on your boats, people. Well, yeah, exactly. So that's why I say, Howard, I, I, it's not going to be as simple as a question of handing over to me in this particular instance, because the popularity <laughs> between yourself and our, ge- our guest is that we can all trace back to uh, uh, yeah. ancestry or uh, a lineage that is outside of the British Isles. However, uh, curveball, because um, I think the Nationality and Borders Bill is somewhat of a continuation of a bill that was initially passed by Margaret Thatcher. Is that yep. I might be correct, side, but based on the fact that if your grandparents didn't have British citizenship, then legally you couldn't, uh, you're you're not a British citizen, and then therefore, and by the same token, that was that the law that's trying to be passed now, the Nationality and Borders Bill now, would be based on the bill that was predicated by Margaret Thatcher. So the original law was in the 80s and the law was passed by in the early years of the Thatcher government in which they basically said, and it, to be fair, the law was brought in so that everybody who was a British citizen at that time would formally go and get the paperwork and say, right, mm. we've now, we have now formalised our right. It wasn't giving them a new right. It was simply mm. formalising a right that they already had. And what was interesting is it was that this this particular clause about stripping of citizenship, which was introduced at that time, was only allowed, was against the backdrop of the Cold War and, you know, what was happening out, interestingly now in light of what's happening in Russia, it was against that backdrop and it was for treason, mm. right? So it was a very limited thing for a very limited set of circumstances. And what's even more fascinating is it wasn't used for 30 years. It wasn't even, mm-hmm. so it was a piece of legislation that sat on the books and never, and it wasn't used. What really made it bad was during the Blair years, you remember this guy called Abu Hamza who used to preach yes. in the east end of London. He was, he, was a Brit, he was a British citizen and then was deported to Jordan despite like hadn't spent no time there and we knew that we'd be sending him back to be tortured if he did return. Yeah, captive, oh. you know, they used to give him all sorts of stuff. In the end, we couldn't even we couldn't even strip him of his citizenship and, it, and in the end he was extradited to the US. But this obsession, do you remember in the Daily Mail and everywhere, to get mm-hmm. rid of this one single guy because we thought we'd solve all our problems if we just got rid of this guy. Yeah. That, this I call it the Abu Hamza Amendment. Effectively, it was, was introduced because of this one guy. We couldn't even use it against him. And now, as a result of that, that was introduced into the Blair government and subsequently further changes that were made, 40% of all Black Asian minority ethnic people in this country are included in this, new, in this law. And what the current government is trying to do is to say... 
We want to keep all these laws about stripping you of your citizenship, but we want to go further and we want to do it without notice. And Wait, without, yeah, covert, covert, yeah, covertly. Sorry, Sada, what was the number again you said about uh, uh, black, and a uh, black and Asian 40%. Britons? 40%. My and now included in this rule change. And you know what's fascinating? They can't even take your driving license off you without a damn process and notice and the oh, whole yeah. lot. But they could just strip you of your citizenship and not even bother telling you. So you're on your way back from, I don't know, you know, a weekend in uh, Malaga. And then you suddenly find out you can't come yeah, back. Yeah, well, this is it. Yeah, yeah. Strip you of your citizenship. I mean, it's just... Come back. You could, you could come back from your honeymoon. Come back from your honeymoon and your partner is like an indigenous British person. And they're like, well, you can come. You can't come. And uh, yeah, um, it's insane. Well... This is the, and, this and is again, the, for me, what does indigenous mean? You know, I, I keep having this issue. How many decades do you have to be here to be here? Well, right? That's a very interesting point, exactly, because what we are defining these are, these all laws, I guess, are based on people that live within England, but the etymology of the word England pertains to uh, the Angles who are in, and Saxonic Germanic tribes that invaded the British Isles and uh, took over control from the Picts and the Celts, who are actually the people who would be Irish and Scottish people who are actually indigenous to uh, the British Isles. This is evidenced archaeologically by the fact that Britain was not a predominantly a uh, Western Orthodox Christian country. Um, we would have had Druidism, uh, we would have had Celtic religions, hence Stonehenge still being there. With, uh, but so you know the the what I, yeah. you know what I say constantly, Dan. Like in Yorkshire, they call it "comers in," right? If you're from the next village, you'd have "comers mm. in," right? You'd have you came into our village. So we're very territorial there. But what I find fascinating is that people talk about this. Oh, this is, we are a Western Christian country, country, and I say Jesus was not born in Barnsley. So yeah. why are you shocked that Moses wasn't born in Manchester and Mohammed yeah. wasn't born in Bradford, right? Let's yeah. get over ourselves. None of these guys were born here. They were all religions that came to these shores and we then created our own versions of these religions because British Judaism or British Christianity or the Church of England, you know, just like British Islam is very different to the way in which it started out in a, you know, foreign yeah. land with foreign looking people. Well, exactly. I mean, the term the West wasn't really coined as an expression until the Council of Nicaea when the church itself was divided. But the curveball I wanted to throw you guys is the fact that like uh, that same legislation, which was initially drafted in the 80s, um, did lead to a large swath of uh, members of the African and Asian diaspora making sure they got the formality of their documentation under control for the same purpose. However, in my own case, uh, my great grandfather is actually Scottish. So I don't. I, so basically, under the laws, I can't actually be deported because we because we're actually from here. We could send you to Scotland, though. <laughs> yeah, they could send me to Scotland, and you know, then I have to take a four-hour train all the time, which would still be pretty expensive <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, I, my my father uh, is. Uh, he is a quarter Scottish, and in fact, I love the way Jane is selling his outhouse. You know, you two will be able to be selling that. I'm on episode 140, whatever, with this bloke. He's suddenly telling me he's Scottish. Does he kept that quiet? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and not, not only that, my so my 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 dad's grandfather is Scottish, and his grandfather has had no. He had a Scottish wife before, with really? whom he had no children. So all of his descendants are actually right. based in Grenada. Well, this Scottish so, thing is yeah. a shock, so, though. Um, Dane, McTe Dane McTeast. Yeah. Well, actually, my right. name would have been Duncan. His surname would have been Duncan. And uh, my father's stepfather's surname was Baptiste, hence where the name comes from. But 
it's um, interesting. I bring it up because to look at me, that is not going to be the presumption that most British people that support legislation as the Nationality and Borders Bill would uphold. So it just goes to show you just how much that falls apart. And I mean, that's not something that's unique to me. You'll find in large, large amounts of the the uh, diaspora, particularly people of Caribbean heritage, will have dual ancestry. Um, and, you know, in the same way that when Blacks and Irish were rejected from opportunities for housing or for socialising within the UK, they tend to end up congregating together. So you have a large amount of people of dual heritage. You also have Celtic heritage as well. So it just the reason I say is that what it comes down to is that it's clear that something like being a British citizen, most people will think that is a synonymous notion mm. with whiteness. But you actually find that it's a lot more complicated than that. And, uh, you know, even the race... Race. I find that race is as much as a social structure as nationality is. So for me, a nationality and borders bill never really makes doesn't make sense at all. But that's only because I'm of the school and it might be a, somewhat of a romantic outlook that I believe that there really shouldn't be any borders. I think if we have a uh, global capitalist system where money is able to change borders and cross borders and change between accounts with relatively with relative ease then the same labour workforce or proletariat that provides said capital should be able to travel equally as freely. So especially when you have a countries in the West, like the UK or America, who somewhat depend upon uh, immigration for the growth, the continued growth of their economies. Um, an example of that would be the fact that uh, following uh, Brexit, we now have lines of freight so long they can be seen from space as a result of the lack of HGV drivers that we have who were initially vacancies yeah. that we can't fill of that we various can't fill. jobs. So, I mean, the question for me would be what makes you a British citizen would be, I guess, if you are occupying the landmass of uh, the British Isles and you are effectively contributing to that, whether it's through, uh, you know, basically spending money within the economy or being a part of the workforce or probably earning money by when you send money home. The commission that uh, British banks have from international transfers is also a contribution itself. Um, but I guess I don't know what makes anybody a citizen in anywhere in the world, much less Britain alone, because is there a particular nuance to you being a British citizen versus being an American citizen? Do you have to adhere to all of the national values that are espoused by that country? Um, if so, then, you know, even Indigenous Britain, if they commit an act or crime which leads to harm or loss, or capital crime, shouldn't they equally, shouldn't they be deported or at least incarcerated if their actions damage the country? I mean, you have people in this country who are identified with Nazis, for example, who, who were our clear biggest belligerents in one of the greatest conflicts we've had in this part of the world. And yet, if you openly identify politically or ideologically with Nazis, you won't be deported from this country, even though technically you'd be treasonous. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is the kind of fascinating thing for me, that one of the parts, one of the things about being a British citizen means that if you commit crime, then it's sure, then we try you by the British system in a British court. And if you're found guilty, we lock you up in a 
British prison. You know, what we don't do is we don't dump you as toxic waste on some other country around the world, like somehow we're going to just throw you in the sea and then it's up to somebody else to pick you up. You know, just like the good people of this country are the good people, just like the law-abiding people are our citizens, just like the amazing athletes are our, you know, are our athletes, just like the amazing business people are our amazing business people, so our criminals are our criminals. And therefore, yeah. we as British people, as you know, if they are our citizens, good, bad or ugly, we are responsible for them. We can't say we'll keep the good people and anybody who does bad will try and find a way because that's just like Australia all over again, isn't it? Let's just find space where we can dump just, them. You know, it comes back to a thing that I think I've said to Dane before on this show, which is I'm kind of done with countries. Like, I don't think this idea of countries is going to, you know, it was, I mean, I can see how it made sense in many previous, you know, iterations of civilization, but like we are so globalized and that those are biggest problems. Our biggest problems are globalized. And so just, just sectioning us, I'll leave that there. Oh, let's laugh at the French and how Macron's telling everyone what he tells. You know, we got, we got that mentality. I think, can shift it can, it can be a very dangerous one if we uphold it because i find it very strange for example that when we hear about humanitarian disasters in tabloid newspapers for example the amount of britons that are uh victims of said disaster or crisis is given as a distinct number from the rest of the yeah, victims yeah. so you'll hear about for example like a plane crash and they'll be like 20 people die, including eight Britons. Like, their lives shouldn't be worth any more than any other innocent human being. So encouraging this jingoistic idea that we as citizens have a distinct life from the rest of humanity is the problem. I'd go, just to add to your point as well, Howard, I'd say the reason why probably what it means to be a British citizenship it has waned over time is because, I, again, it's my held belief that uh, nationality is really more of a... Uh, it's more of a, a tool of division, I think, and control, because I would say that countries in a globally global economy, a capitalist economy, have been usurped yes. by multinationals. <laughs> How's that for an answer, Saeed? Is that, uh, is that all right? That has been a wide-ranging discussion. Thank you. <laughs> we're we're, we're, we're going to move on, but I think we could easily do the full hour on just that. One, I, I, should say, I should say it more, more, more concisely. Uh, what it means to me is fuck all because if someone can take it away from you even though you are a member of this country and you've lived here your whole life and raised your children and paid your taxes and gone to school here and built a whole life and network of friends and family and that can be taken away based on a technicality what it means to me is it is so special that I'm going to fight for it every step of the way and make sure that no crazy home secretary or future crazy home secretary thinks that they can come along and decades after everything that uh, you know our ancestors have done to make the country what it is they can start to tell us that we don't belong because my answer to that is i don't think so one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And the irony being that the person that is overseeing this policy themselves is, 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 is descended from immigrants. So it's it an insane crazy. paradox, oh, really. So, I think there is a side to this act, which well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be, could be. Well, or you could go back in time because her her whole her whole idea is predicated on the fact that if her own father tried to immigrate to the UK, then she wouldn't have let him in based on her own policies. But then I'm like, but then in the same Martin McFly kind of quantum physics model, you wouldn't be able to assume the position of Home Secretary if your father wasn't allowed in the country to get you access to a privileged education and to be in a circle to realize your position in the first place well we will be sharing some information on this subject and this issue with our Mm. uh followers on social media uh but thank you for bringing it up saida it's a great question um good i've got a very different question good uh i was going to ask you a political one but i bet you just talk about that all the time and when i was looking at all your information you know um stalking you before i write your introduction (laughs) i noticed that you like home improvement shows oh yes (laughs) i thought you'd find this more fun let's light things up with a little so um uh, what ones do you watch like changing rooms or like homes under the hammer like any of these location location right yeah the hammer list it all love it you know everything (laughs) so my question (laughs) to to you escape to the country oh really all of them oh you know them all (laughs) (laughs) in the sun well, we've had we've had Scarlett Douglas yeah, on, yeah, we've had Scarlett yeah, Douglas on the show as well, so she's a long-time friend of the podcast. So, so we definitely, definitely so my, identify well. with that. <laughs> good, good. But no, you need to find time for these things. Uh, but my <laughs> question to you, watch all these programs. <laughs> my question grand to designs. you. Oh, Property Grand Designs, brothers. yes. Oh yeah, that, sorry. Brothers. Don't leave that, Howard. <laughs> of course. Wow, you really do know them all. I, I mean, if I was just asking you questions, a quiz on this, this would be ideal. But I haven't got yeah, a quiz. I'm a celebrity uh, mastermind. My my subject is property programs. But my my question uh, to you and to Dane is: How much can you tell about someone from their home? Because you do that on these shows, right? We look at people's homes and we make judgments on them and then you visit people's homes not as much in recent times do you you haven't been able to haven't been able to go over and see people with the pandemic but i, I you know i think it's fascinating and do you think you know how much does a home really represent the person oh, who, who lives there such a huge amount i mean i can only go on my my own home and um you know but our kind of where home home is, is is in yorkshire rather than here in london and you know people will walk in and say I could have walked around this house and known it was your house. <laughs> and so I just think it, your home is such a reflection of your personality and your life and your journey. And so such a, you know, kind of big part of that. And that's why I think I'm, I just love character in homes and, you know, this kind of new, you know, I have, um, I have, friends who have these amazingly swish clinical i call them dubai on steroids houses you know marble everywhere and stainless steel and i go and they're saying big old french windows 
I would much rather have a rickety chair with six, you know, stories of six generations who've sat on it. I, I, I just think things have to have, I love stories, right? In the end, we are the sum total of the stories that we made and we were a part of when we were in this world. And I think your home should reflect those stories. Yeah, so. that's a good answer. It, it, it fascinates me because, you know, all those programs, you know, they kind of, sometimes you feel like you're kind of losing that, right? That there's no real sense of, well, you do sometimes have the sense of people's stories who own these houses, but a lot of the time it's kind of just like commodified, right? Into this thing yeah. that we're then going to see if we can make some money out of. Yeah. And uh, also I think the other thing is people like, you know, in a, in a, in a world of instant results, you know, we love walking into, Oh my God, it's such a wreck. And then, woohoo, it looks amazing. We love that feeling of it's, finished the job is done it all turned out well it was you know and so I think in that sense it's there is something that satisfies our instinctive need for you know completion and and seeing good results and happiness and happy endings I've thought about it in terms of my house because I think if someone could you know if someone's going to tell something about uh my house it would be that my wife uh makes the decisions uh, that would be <laughs> that would be the absolute honest truth of it's just like you know you kind of look at the different things in here and you just kind of go yeah I'm glad Tara's here because Howard would have just done nothing like absolutely nothing. I think nothing. that's quite a big man thing, you know. So I, I know that once we'd finished the house and it was nice and clean and everything was plastered and painted, you know, uh, um, almond, whatever, eggshell, white or whatever. I, I think the um, my husband in his head thought we had done. And yet mm. for me, what I thought was... You know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, we only just begun, exactly. what? <laughs> what was, you have just, just bought the cameras. We haven't even started the... You know... Yeah, this is yeah. the structure. That's why I've canvas white, baby. <laughs> this is the structure, mate. You know, we've only just started and it drives him insane because I draw up lists of things. So we have a thing in our house. He is phenomenal at DIY. Um, and I'm telling him what phenomenal at telling him how DIY should be done. So I am DIY <laughs> management. I'm sure he and loves he's it. DIY operational. We have these very clear distinctions. So you're, you're, you're the foreman. Exactly. You're the foreman so and yeah, he does I'm management, he's operational. And as long as we get that clear and I manage it and tell him how to do it. And he, he can tell me he's looking at he's got all these bad power tools and that. And I'm like, do you think you should do it like that? And he just looks at me with that look of saying, I'm just going to, take a deep breath and I'm not going to answer you <laughs> because you were telling me what you can. And, and he always says to me, I find it fascinating how you tell me to do something that you are incapable of doing yourself. And I went, that's politics, sweetheart. I live my life telling people myself. You knew who I was when you met me, good sir. Yeah, exactly. Now back you to work. That drilling. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting thing right dane like there's a lot you can tell about people from their their gaffes right i think i think yeah you can tell i mean there are other factors that can affect someone's house i suppose affordability because i guess we're talking more about ownership than people that would rent or people that may be in affordable housing because i have found that it seems that people are able to own their property may be a bit more discerning about how the aesthetic of their home and whereas I suppose if you come from a line where property ownership has not been normalized then that can also be very much reflected in how your house looks so on the one hand like so for, and I say that to say this for example 
when there was obviously a big uh, trend of poverty porn on television, you'd have like how, how clean it shows like how clean is your house and they look at like council houses. And initially I'd see somebody who's living in a council house and those, the woman, for example, has got like 11 dogs. And I'm like, this woman is just a scraggle back and should be living under a bridge with other trolls is initially what I think. And then I think then if you have, well, have had never really had the responsibility of your own home necessarily. So the importance of it being a reflection of who you are, won't be the same as someone who's maybe earned a home or understands that having a home as an asset, as well as having it as essentially your family's mm. institutional building is not going to resonate as much. But I think you can definitely tell, although uh, I agree with Saida to an extent that people that get these kind of like Dubai as very sterile new builds. Um, I think that does, that's really more about people only given a, a superficial indication of their character like it can be like you know the fact that they can afford to have these renovations might be the only message they want to send because in the film the girl that is it the girl with the dragon tattoo like the guy at the end one of the guys has an amazing house it's like in sweden so like the architecture is just a1 ikea <laughs> apple of ikea's eye but then he had uh, a murder dungeon yeah. under it so, that's <laughs> so, why they were expressing you know I mean? their sometimes the people might have <laughs> oh, so all these friends of mine that have got these fancy houses, are you saying they've got murder dungeons underneath there? Yes. I'm gonna check exactly them out next time. Saying. They might not be they might not be murder dungeons. There's oh. always different types of dungeons nowadays, say that you've got your food dungeon, dungeon your wine dungeon, dungeon, kink dungeon, love dungeon, love dungeon yeah. wine dungeon. <laughs> or, or cellar, <laughs> yeah, as boring exactly. people oh, call them. Book <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, a book dungeon. A baby dungeon or a crash <laughs> or a playroom. I, I think one called. thing that's been going over my mind that part, I think it's partly inspired this is, is that if, you know, it's looking like people can come over to my house, uh, you know, more than they were in the previous eras of this pandemic. And um, I was just thinking the other day, oh, God, if I'm going to ask people over, I'm going to have to tidy up because this bloke, the, the baby bloke that lives here, he does. He just turns this place into a mess. Like it's just an absolute pigsty. Like, kind of, I fell over like four different things of his last night trying to get down the, you know, get don't through the living room. And it's just like, it's interesting how much of it, you. I'm sure you both relate to the idea of having to tidy up. You, I don't know if my mother made me feel that that's important. Like, I've got to tidy up before someone comes over. <laughs> so if you go to Howard's house, what you'll find out is that he's a first-time parent. <laughs> And you can tell as well with first-time parents and what kind of how much fun or how active their child is because, first of all, there's a, there's a level of baby-proofing for the house because when my nephew was first born, my sister bought, like, for her house, she bought, like, not padlocks, but, like, yeah, clips yeah, yeah, for, like, so the cupboards yeah, couldn't yeah. open so he accidentally detergents. But I don't think he never really appeared to, like, motion towards the kitchen cupboard under the sink to try what bleach is like. That might be a certain type of child in the same way that, like, I've never seen him scale like a tall building or a fence and attempt to mimic uh, moves that he's seen on like mm. professional wrestling, like his uh, uncle may have done. Um, but yeah, I think I think your ha- a house can definitely be a reflection of who somebody is. But then I think, but by that same token, it's more of a function of who that person is rather than what they're about. Because a house for some people is a home, and for other people, mm. it's a status sim- symbol, and for other people, it's a uh, a place where they can smoke crack and cheese so the police don't come. And that in itself can provide a certain level of stability that, um, you know, non-crack smokers don't understand. In fact, it's actually, they, you know, it, in terms of like the racial disparities in the statistics involving drug use, 
that's one of the reasons that there is a discrepancy in terms of who gets caught and tried is because people that are from more impoverished backgrounds are forced to do stuff like use illicit drugs outdoors or in alleyways or in buildings or doorways. Whereas if you are from a wealthy background, you can do your drugs in peace and not get caught. So, um, yeah, you can, again, a house could definitely tell you about somebody. Um, some may, may, you know, say that person may be somewhat privileged with the current housing crisis we're experiencing in this country. Um, but I think that's a very interesting answer, Dane. And uh, for uh, a number of reasons, we will move on to your question. Uh, we've gone, we've covered British citizenship. How much does a house tell about you? What are you going to bring to this episode this week, Dane? Um, well, I hope I'm able to link all of these narratives uh, and dovetail them quite nicely. Obviously, Saida, we have spent a lot of time working together on Steph Pat Lunch. What I tend to find is a lot of the time is that I, if not uh, closely, wholeheartedly agree with a lot of your sentiments when we discuss uh, social and political issues, which some may argue ideologically is strange because I would say if I were to sit somewhere on the bipartisan political spectrum, I would definitely say that I would identify more with maybe a pre a pre Jeremy Corbyn Labour. Somewhere there's some there's a sweet spot between Blair Blair's Labour and uh, Corbyn on the ballot Labour to Corbyn leaving Labour that I was like yeah I can deal with that as in like you know certain level of deregulation opportunity for those who are maybe working class to have aspirations whether it's going to university or home ownership um, from uh, you know council properties with the option to buy for example um, and I guess obviously identifying with people that will be disproportionately affected by by the national identity and borders bills that we've discussed. Um, and I say all that to say this. Uh, most people wouldn't uh, associate uh, conservative rhetoric with people who are descended from immigrants. And at the same time, we've even had people with conservative platitudes like Calvin Robinson from GB News on our podcast to kind of discuss because I think it's been taken as a given for many years, particularly by political institutions like the Democrats in the States and Labour here, that if you are an immigrant, you will uh, vote for Labour. And we have found out that that's definitely not the case. And it seems to be nowadays that people can be more open and some, particularly members of the uh, African and Asian diaspora, especially given our Home Secretary and uh London's mayor, uh, both of uh, Asian descent, that there are more people of colour identifying with uh, conservative Mm -hmm. ideology. And so I wanted to ask you, um, whereas historically people, you know, you'd hear all of the rhetoric of you being a sellout or a traitor or a race traitor or coconut or a bounty, uh, I think think we've learned it's not as the bipartisan political system is not as straightforward or as binary as it used to be. So my question is, what does it mean to be a conservative of colour nowadays? Yeah, huge question. And actually, you know, one which I have kind of talked about all my political career. So for me, this all comes back down to ideology. How do you see the world? If if I just put the kind of colour of my skin to one side and the fact that, you know, my party historically and even currently it has got a terrible record on on racism. Um, then I, 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 you know, I want to look at this purely. Into, the only thing that I think government should ever disagree on, and the only thing that politically we should ever disagree on, is tax and spend. How much money are we going to take off the public, and wh- how where are we going to spend it? 
That that is the only thing that in modern civilized democracies we should be talking about. We shouldn't be talking about statues, and we shouldn't be talking about racism, and we shouldn't be talking about anti-Semitism, and we shouldn't be talking about culture wars and all this other rubbish that goes on in the background. It simply should be. But are, but and, and sorry sorry to cut you, but are these things that we discuss when it comes to like racial identification, maybe uh, or like sex, sexuality, gender, etc., are these not uh, tools of leverage? that are used by political parties in order to guarantee that tax base and to also have uh, acquiescence from said tax base when they are spending that money accordingly. So, for example, because I say that because, like, you know, not a lot of people are aware, just through the merit of culture and religion, for example, a lot of Caribbean and West African members of the diaspora actually identify with a lot of conservative or what would be more closely I recognize as Republican values, whether it's like Judeo-Christian belief, more classical ideas when it comes to family and marriage and coupling. Um, and also, you know, these most of the people are from countries which do not have established welfare systems anyway. So, it, I mean, most people are almost raised Tory to an extent if you're from the West Indies or you're from uh, West Africa or you're from, uh, or you may have been a part of the large influx of uh, the Asian diaspora from Uganda or from Kenya, as well as uh, from Southeast and, and, Asia. And so, it's exactly the same in terms of yeah. South Asia. So if you're from India or Pakistan or Bangladesh, it's exactly the same. There isn't a welfare state. There's a sense that you have to go out and fend for yourself, that you have to look out for your families, that you have to look after your elderly, that responsibility to family and childcare is all part of what the whole family does together, that economically you all rise together, all of that kind of sense of stuff. And I always say that I don't think there was a single person, if you went back to my granddad's generation, who said, let's go over to Britain because they have a welfare state. Most of them said, let's go over to Britain because there are jobs and there are jobs that, that we can do. So I think in that... Yeah, and and pound and pound stretch further than East yeah, Caribbean exactly. dollars or rupees. So, so. I think for me, you know. what I find, um, if I, you know, I am instinctively a low tax, low small state conservative. I think the state should stay out of your life as much as it can. I think that those that can afford it should pay money to help those that are in uh, need of a safety net, and that's what it should be. I think that instinctively, each and all, every one of us should be encouraged from day one to have the barriers taken away so that we can fulfil our full financial, economic, emotional potential. Um, and those instinctively, and I'm a, I'm a believing individual, uh, have a, uh, a belief in individual liberty, and that we are in a place where as a state, we are um, on a journey of progressive liberal values and that journey should continue and each generation will determine what those progressive liberal values look like. And yet, we have I found myself in a Conservative Party which is economically liberal rather than conservative and socially conservative rather than liberal. So I would define myself as economically conservative, socially liberal, and yet my party has gone a bit bonkers where it's writing out checks left, right and centre with no sense of where we're going to pay it back and even letting fraudsters take four billion pounds off and that's fine we keep writing the checks and sending you know getting spending taxpayers money in a way that i'm appalled that it's a conservative government that's doing that because that in my head would normally be something that the left of politics would do just waste taxpayers money on on things that they didn't you know and, and just lose it all um, and yet socially where we should be liberal on these issues socially we've turned into some sort of weird inward looking kind of space where ever increasingly we're limiting what it defines to be part of you know kind of britain so um what makes me a conservative 
And just to follow up a question to that is, as, as a conservative of colour as well, it's very interesting because where we're seeing some of the conservative parties more regressive policies, more than we've ever seen following austerity and the like, it seems to almost be strangely happening at a time where aesthetically the look of the party has changed whereby, you know, uh, the uh, the Chancellor is of Asian descent and then the Home Secretary is also of Asian descent at this time as well. Um, so you've got like Kwasi Kwarteng as well being a member of the cabinet and it's strange that we're seeing more conservatives of colour when policies which threaten to damage, like I said, 40% of black and Asian and minority people are being pushed through uh, as bills. Is is there like a, do you find there is, is does there exist any galvanization or any subgroups within the Conservative Party? Like, because I'm sure I feel like uh, there must have been a point in time where you'd be maybe at party functions and be like, am I the only brown person here? And then see another brown person and be like, it's just me. It's just me. <laughs> Actually, it happened at the cabinet table. You know, I walked in and I, I thought, oh, I might be the only non white person around this table, 2010. Um, so I rocked up in a pink shawl camisa and I thought, I look different. I'll be different. You know, there's, I'm not even going to try and kind of pretend that I'm not. But I, I think what there's a big difference, Dane, between representation and fighting um and, and fighting for racial equality there are there are two completely different things just because mm-hmm. you are brown or black doesn't mean that you i mean you assumed they would but doesn't mean that you fight for the equality of people who are brown and black so and yeah. i also think that it's a it's a really stupid thing that to, i don't think that you can only be racist if you're a white person or you can only be a fascist if you're a white person because you only have to look at um you know people around the world, crazy people around the world who believe in fascist ideologies. I mean, you know, we've got the, we've got the, uh, uh, the prime minister of India, Modi, who believes in this ideology of the RSS, yeah. which is rooted in Nazism, you know, and therefore he doesn't need to be yeah. a white person to, to believe in racism and, you know, racial superiority and fascism. So I don't think that, I don't think those lines along color are that, that clear for me and this is the issue that i have of politicians of color within the conservative party is that it almost seems like if you are a politician of color you only bring your color to the table True. if you are going to use the issue mm. that you're a bit speak about to effectively either gaslight that community or you or weaponize it against that community so you'll see people coming along and saying i'm a black a person point, and therefore i can talk about black on black crime and let's talk about black on black crime but let's not talk about racial injustices that face those communities uh, baroness wasi if you want to say trevor phillips <laughs> you can say trevor phillips on this podcast he's on next week no he's not um, he was the he, I mean, he should be. I mean, I mean, I'd ask him, but he was the minister for racial equality for a long time, and I don't think most. Yeah, but he's doing well. He's now he was, Sir Trevor Phillips, so you know he's got his little. Or even if you're a Muslim, let me give you an example. If I'm, a, if I go in and I, I say to the Conservative Party, let me talk to you about, um, let me talk to you about terrorism and how bad these Muslims are because some of them are engaged in terrorist activity, then that's good for me to talk about my Muslimness. But if I go along and say, actually, I want to talk to you about mm. Islamophobia and racial discrimination faced by Muslims and the impact that that has on their, say, educational outcome, I'm a troublemaker. So it almost seems like people, politicians of colour or minority faiths in the Conservative Party can bring that to the table, providing it's used as a sword with which to weaponize and gaslight those communities that they come from. But the minute they pick up a shield and say, actually, because I am from these communities and I understand these communities and I'm therefore going to raise these issues because I come from it from a position of understanding and strength to say, 
this is how we need to deal with these issues. You're then advocating, representing, speaking for those communities, and therefore you're a pain. And that's why you rarely hear people of color within the Conservative Party talking about racial equality because it turns the it turns the onus on everybody to say we need to do something about it whereas the way in which the conservative party like to do things is if there's an issue in the black community then the black community is to blame if there's an issue in the muslim community then there's a muslim community to blame if there's an issue in the bengali community then it's a bengali community to blame and actually it's got nothing to do with the structural issues that have existed for decades and the way in which say black yeah. boys are more likely to be picked up by the police are more likely to be stopped and searched are more likely to get mm. higher prison sentences you know Facts, you know that thing. Facts, reality. Mm-hmm. I, I, rem- I remember them well. No, it's an amazing. I was just going to say one thing that I know Dane thinks about, which is the reflection of, uh, of of what you're talking about in in regard to America. Whereas in America, at the moment, there's obviously this small group within the Democrat Party who are, I think, doing a lot of what you're kind of suggesting we need a bit more of, which is kind of. You know, they what they <laughs> use the word troublemaker. I'm not sure I'm going to use that word, but you know, are we are we are we talking about the uh, triumvirate of uh, the squad, and, uh, the squad, the squad? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, but in America, it's very noticeable how 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 antagonistic uh, they are yeah. to so many. But then America but, is always extreme. But you know, I, I don't know Shout if you know. I don't know if you know, Dan, I always say whenever we kind of tweet pictures on Instagram from Steph's, I always call it Steph's squad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this is, there's something about that squad and really, I also exactly. think there's something wonderful about women suddenly saying you know what I'm actually going to stop being a good girl and I'm actually going to stop kind of playing by the rules because your rules don't work for me anymore well, well that's a really good point and, and I, I wonder it's a strange it's a strange aesthetic whereby as you said it seems that generalizations made about uh, racial and ethnic groups in the UK any ills within those communities are uh those, those communities have to assume culpability for those things. And yet, if you are a conservative of colour, you're not able to opine on those things, which is strange because when you, as I said, when you consider now the amount of prominent black and brown conservatives from uh, what it would be yourself, uh, Preeti Patel, Kwasi Kwarteng, Kemi Badenoch, shouldn't the fact that these, these people are even, have re- Sajid Javid, Rishi Sunak, the fact that they're even occupying these positions, doesn't that really by in itself prove narratives about these negative narratives about these communities are false because these same communities are producing these people who have risen to these highest offices within government but an exception is not a rule following up with that an exception is not a rule you know i am an exception but when there's so many people, is but when there's so many people, isn't an exception after a while though? Because there's yourself, as I said, and all well, the it affirmation shows progression, people. Doesn't it? The more and more it people, shows some just, kind of sense of progression. Yeah, yeah. but then, and and then I was going to say as well. Obviously, it sounds like you experienced the same ills and impediments that your left wing contemporaries experience as well. Is there any kind of discourse that takes place between maybe Labour and Liberal Democrats, Liberal Lib Dem conser- um, representatives of colour and Conservatives of colour? Like, so for example, like I said, while I may not identify directly with some political ideas or how you vote, we can agree on everything else. No, so by that same I token, can you have a, that you a Dawn Butler? What a headline that would be! Nice <laughs> for a while, could you imagine? Not only is Dane Baptiste Scottish, but 
Oh, did you tell me? You don't roll the SMP. Keep that quiet, then. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, what a bombshell. Right. I'll, I'll put out a statement. <laughs> Goodbye, <laughs> listeners. It's been fun. And I'm fine with bombs. <laughs> I'm fine with bombs <laughs> yeah, now, Goodbye, listeners. Yeah, let's not talk about Howard Bomb. Bombs Howard. I mean, I'm sorry. I can take that really personally. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that yesterday I was speaking about this in relation to Nusrat Ghani, the, uh, the colleague who's raised this issue of being sacked from her job for allegedly her Muslimness. And one of the things I talked about was what Diane Abbott has said, which is that if you are a politician of colour in any political party, you if you face racism and you have the audacity to say, I face racism, I'm, this is really not acceptable, it's career-ending. It's almost like to be a racist is career-enhancing, but to raise the issue of racism is career-ending. And this is left or right, actually, by the way. And so, yeah, uh, and I think what yeah. I find quite disturbing is that as parliamentarians, we are the people who go to parliament to defend the rights of others, to speak out against injustice, and to feel like we are like the first point of protection when things are going to start to go wrong. If we can't even protect ourselves, if we can't even speak out about injustices that we face, and if we can't even call out racism and we're expected to suffer in silence, then something in our political, cultural and system has gone horribly wrong. If the advocates can no longer advocate for themselves, you know, we're allowed to advocate for others, but we're not allowed to advocate for ourselves. And so I think there is something quite... Uh, disturbing and I do think there has to be a cultural shift about people uh, of colour and even women you know women who raise the issue of misogyny and and you know the Me Too movement in, within parliament and sexual harassment within parliament those women are kind of seen as oh well you know they're a little bit kind of awkward and let's sideline them slowly the women issue the female you know the gender issue is starting to come to the fore and I think there's a lot more women in parliament to give that support but politicians of colour rarely have the confidence to call out racism when they feel it uh, when they face it themselves and they should be able to as british citizens so that is my address to the to the uh, political institution of great britain is that irrespective of your uh, political identity then you should have the right as a British citizen, especially a representative of parliament, to be able to liaise with your contemporaries and discuss issues which affect you directly. Because I would wager if we all remain silent and conform to more regressive uh, racial policies or racialized policies, then you're not going to have any more Preeti Patels. And she won't have to worry about her dad coming to this country. Because the way she's going now already, there may not be, never be another Preeti Patel. Or what if, you know, when she has children and then their citizenship rights can be revoked by a more regressive version of the government that she is a member of, you know, how badly could this go? So, yeah. It's an amazing subject. And it's been an amazing episode, right, Dane? Like, what a, what a load of stuff we've covered this week, right? We've flown by. We, it's flown by. We've had a lot of fun. And I, I feel like I've learned a lot, uh, as I always do when we speak, uh, Baroness Wasi. So, first of all, thank you very much. You have lived up to expectations, which is a nice surprise for a politician. Totally former politician. politician. So, hence... <laughs> Sorry, hence making good on your promises Sorry, in this particular instance. Well, there you go. So, I mean, you are a rebel in so many ways. Well, as well as you being, hate to being like an me, outspoken me, woman. You that hate is to like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> he goes to church. He goes to church it's every made, week made, and asks for forgiveness. <laughs> 
<laughs> I have to, I have to, I have to explain. I uh, give explanations and captions every time we take pictures together. <laughs> it's all showbiz. It's a, it's a filter. It's a French filter. That's what it is. No, it, it, no, it's it, it definitely. I think it's um, always a pleasure speaking to you, Saida, and it's obviously testament to the fact that as uh, divided as people uh, seem to appear, particularly in social media all uh, capable humans can have uh, structural, constructive discourse, whether uh, they identify differently politically. So My thank pleasure. you very much. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. And just to uh, dovetail, other than your amazing um, plans and aspirations for interior design, where else can our listeners find out about more yeah, about your good works? So I am on Instagram at Saeed Barsi, where I post really weird pictures. Or as my kids say, you post like a middle-aged woman. I am a middle-aged woman posting, so what do they expect? Um, and <laughs> you get, exactly. Sense, like, then, you're supposed it? to post the pictures after you've had your roots done, not whilst you're having your roots done. Instagram is about pretty people, <laughs> not weird-looking people. So, <laughs> the, so you can get me on Instagram at Saeed Barsi or on Twitter, which is where I kind of politically have all my opinions, which again is at Saeed Barsi. Or if you would like... I can come round with the Tory party membership form and we can have a cup of tea. Let's, uh, let's, let's take baby steps first of all. And then we'll take it from there. Howard, Howard's trying to push me into politics. I'm not sure if this is what he wants me to go through. I'm not sure where we're going right now, Dave. Sure going. But, um, it's been a great show. Thank you, no, Sarah. I've loved it. I've loved it and I'm really glad I agreed to do it. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnaptiste. Our guest was Baroness Saida Vazi. You can follow Saida on Twitter and Instagram at Saida Vazi. The show was produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at We Are Audio Culture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.